0: Peter, Second Peter chapter 3, this is our sixth out of seven sermons that we're going to have in this particular book. Uh, you might remember that chapter 1 begins with a really encouraging tone. It's a, it's a summons that you and I might grow in godliness. We might confirm our calling, our election by building on the faith that God's given us. Chapter 2 is a little bit heavier of a tone. It's about false teachers. Peter calls them blots and blemishes on the church. It was a warning, really, for God's people inside the church to be watchful. And now you come to chapter 3, and I would say there's another type of shift. This time, uh, Peter returns to that pastoral tone, but he also speaks about things which are very heavy the doctrine of divine judgment, that God really will and does judge evil. And so, our passage teaches us, and this would be true for anybody, whether you're here uh, for the first time or a long time, whether you believe or whether you're a skeptic, this is a passage that actually teaches us how we could stand before Almighty God on the great day of the Lord. So, we pick up at chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 9 today, and as we do, I'll simply remind you that this is God's Word. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to count to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is God's Word. Let's pray for His help. Oh Father, we ask that You would now open Your Word to us. And through the ministry of Your Spirit, You would give us ears to hear what You are saying to us. And I ask again that You would use a wretched, sinful, crooked stick to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus, and we pray this in his name. Amen. In all of the Bible, who would you suppose says the most about the wrath of God? Who would you suppose says the most about the coming judgment, that that great day of the Lord? Who says the most about the return of Christ? Who says the most about the doctrine of divine justice? You might think for a second, well, maybe it's an Old Testament prophet, maybe Isaiah, Jeremiah has some judgmental things to say, maybe Ezekiel. Well, okay, if it's not an Old Testament prophet, then maybe it's somebody like the Apostle Paul. He speaks in the book of Romans about the wrath of God coming against ungodliness. And if you've been sitting here the last several weeks, you might say, well, maybe it's Peter, He's said a lot about judgment. And the answer which might surprise you is actually Jesus. That is, the the meek and mild Prince of Peace says more about the coming judgment than anyone else in the whole Bible. Now, why do I mention that? It's because people outside the church, people who are not used to reading the Scriptures, would tend to say, well, I kind of like some of the things that Jesus says. I like his tone, I, I, I like the way he talks about equity and nonviolence. he seems to care about healing, he seems to care about justice. They especially like the fact that he, that he calls out those who would be judgmental, he calls out those who would be hypocrites. But if you recognize that Jesus really is the one who speaks the most about this subject, it's worth us asking the question, why does Jesus speak the most about divine judgment, more than anyone else? Well, certainly it's because He's God. So not only does He speak and exude God's character, but He never feels compelled to separate justice from from mercy more than that, he came to seek and to save the lost. Would anyone know he or she was lost? Would anyone feel their sense of need without comprehending a doctrine of divine justice? And so that's actually the reason why Jesus says more about justice than anyone else in the Scriptures. He's actually the very best one to comment on justice because he's the one coming to deliver mercy. Mercy. So here's 2nd Peter chapter 3 Peter the imprisoned apostle passes along the teachings of Jesus and here's what he says in our text God's justice highlights his patience and invites your repentance God's justice highlights his patience and invites your repentance So first what you must read second what they will say third what you must understand so we start with what you must read. This portion I, I mentioned is wrapped in such pastoral tenderness. Verse 1, verse 8, Peter calls his, his readers beloved. They're, they're precious to him because they belong to Christ. I, I resonate. The older I get as a pastor, I can only imagine Peter in prison thinking about God's people. I sit at my, ser- at my desk writing sermons each week, and I, and I think of God's people in this congregation. And I think about the things that you are hurting over, the things that make you grieve, the things that break your heart, the things that God cares about, the things that make you wonder, does he care? And so I can only imagine an imprisoned Peter writing, Beloved, it's because they belong to Christ. And so we pick up when Peter says, You're so precious, not only to me, but to the Father, that I want you to be sensitive enough to read the times. Look at verse 1. I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. We've seen that phrase before, that idea of stirring up someone. It's like rousing them from sleep. We saw it back in chapter 1 where Jesus, I reference the fact that Jesus had to stir up his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed. Remember, they're sleeping at the Garden of Gethsemane. They didn't recognize the severity, the tension of the moment in which they were laying down. And Jesus has to come and and rouse them. And so here is much older Peter coming back to, to rouse God's people from sleep. Why is that necessary? Because everything goes on as it always has. And we feel tempted to fall asleep, to get lax as we wait on the return of Christ. And so I live my life and you live your life as if every day is the same. And as it has always been, so it will always be. Let me quickly summarize the letter up to this point. God's people, you and I must embrace the faith that God has given to us, but faith never rests. It never lies dormant in your mind. So, every believer is called to to lean into his or her faith that God's given him. We're supposed to build on the foundation of Christ Peter says, make your calling and election sure, and the way you do that is you add virtue, and you add knowledge, and you add godliness, and you learn to exercise self-control and perseverance, and all of this growth is really the pathway to an effective, fruitful life of the believer. Before Christ, you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins, and now in Christ, God has made us alive. And all of this is bound up in verse 1. I'm here to stir you up by way of reminder. But this is not simply an internal focus. In other words, if you and I would learn to be alert and and vigilant, we must read the times in which we live, the prophets of the Old Testament. And Jesus himself told us, verse 3, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. I think there's a few phrases that have to be defined. What are the last days? There's a ton of confusion on that term in the church. The fact is that when Christ ascended into heaven, he ushered in the last days. Peter was living in the last days, and so are you. You don't have to count the number of earthquakes. You don't have to count the number of wars or rumors of wars. You don't have to hang your hat on the fact that reconstructed Israel is now back together. You just simply have to know that the Bible says That the end time is the space between Christ's ascension into heaven and his promised return. It's the space between God providing salvation and his coming again to judge the living and the dead. It's the space. And Peter says in that space, scoffing is proof that the time is near. More on the concept of near in just a moment. So, what is a scoffer? Well, it's a person who mocks the truth. It doesn't mean that they are ignorant about the truth. It's not really a person who's never heard the truth. It's rather a person who heard the word of truth. They know that there is a promise of the return of Christ. They know there's a promise of impending judgment from God, but they mock it as if there's no way it could possibly happen. Can you believe these fools gather each week? throughout the globe, for thousands of years, and they're all still waiting. And they do not mock the return of Jesus to judge the world because of some intellectual superiority, though that is what they will almost always claim. But Peter puts his finger right on the issue. He says they scoff at the idea of judgment because they want to follow their own sinful desires. Verse 3. I can't help but wonder if this does not sub- describe some who would hear my voice today. If perhaps you haven't been sitting in or around the church for years... And you've heard me or someone else speak of God's righteous judgment. You've heard that there's wrath coming upon sin of all kinds. And and yet, week after week, you've also heard a summons. God's grace is offered. His salvation is made available through Jesus Christ. But you scoff and you mock the message. Okay? If that's you, then your own intelligence... And your own consistency would demand that you ask a sincere question. Is it actually that I don't believe that there's a day when frail, finite human beings will face an infinite God? Do I genuinely believe that men and women who can barely muster 80 years of breath for their lungs will somehow just be laid in the dirt, and never face eternal, infinite God? Do I actually believe that Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin will never face justice? Or is it perhaps that I'm just hoping that God won't judge sin because I would like to follow my own sinful desires?" To be very clear, if you genuinely believe that there is no such thing as a God who judges sin at all, then you actually have a much bigger problem on your hands. <clears throat> because somewhere deep down, every single one of us looks around and knows there really are people in this world who deserve to be judged for their sin. What do you do with the Adolf Hitler what do you do with a Joseph Stalin? What do you do with the tyrant who is a fat cat ruling over his nation while children starve under his reign? What do you do with the precious child who is abused brutally? I say you have a bigger problem because here's what you have to do. And I will borrow these from many others who've said it this same way. If you do not believe there's a coming judgment, then somewhere deep down, you actually have to kill the part of you that wants justice at all. Like, you just have to close your eyes and ignore that any evil would ever deserve punishment. You have to ignore the bigger question of the Holocaust. Six million Jews who died. You have to ignore the abused child. You have to ignore the starving one. You have to ignore the victim of murder. The other option, if you do not believe there's a final judgment, you can simply take up the cause of justice yourself. But if you do that, you have to give every waking moment, every last dollar to the cause of justice. And I suppose that on any college campus, there are people who are doing that even now. But if you do that as consistency demands, there is no way you will last beyond your 22 years. That's actually the reason that those who stood to protest justice are no longer still standing to protest from the 1960s to today. Because eventually the heart burns out and they surrender. I can't fix it. The other option, of course, is to believe that there really is a coming day of judgment. And there is a just God. But to be sure, if you go with this option, then you will immediately surrender the fact that He is the judge and you aren't. That He determines justice and you don't which means that you will not get to vote with Him on whether you would consider your sins little or big. And this, I believe, is what most scoffers of our day do. Maybe even some sitting here. Who do not believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ? Because if they were to arrive at the conclusion that there is a just God who must and will judge sins, they want to wiggle themselves out of the obvious implications. If he judges sin at all, then he's going to judge mine. Peter says when a person mocks or scoffs at God, it is quite deliberate. So he or she can follow his or her own sinful desires. One New Testament scholar defines scoffing as a willful contempt for God and his Son. Followers of Christ, expect it. Scoffers will come in the last days. And why? Because they're following their desires more than they're following the truth. There's a passage that says, God's justice highlights His patience, which invites your repentance. So, what you must read, but then secondly, what they will say. Peter, in verses 5 through 8, steadily deals with the precise objections of the teachers of his day. Truth is, these arguments haven't changed at all. You'll notice they sound similar to what you'll hear. And that is those who question the return of Christ or the issue of final judgment. This is how it sounds. Look at verse 4. They will say, where's the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, again, we're talking about people who generally believe that there is a God but the question is a matter of cosmic intervention. They say God doesn't intervene, therefore he will not judge sin. And so the the, the appeal is to the sheer length of time that's passed. They'll say the time is actually proving that nothing ever changes. And, and yet, while appealing to the issue of time, the scoffers mention the creation. They have to begin somewhere. And Peter says, okay. Let's start with creation, verse 5, for they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And so he's drawing back from Genesis chapter 1 and he says the creation itself proves the concept of divine intervention. Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, meaning that there was a time That they didn't exist, meaning that God intervened. What was it all like before God created? It was chaos. Genesis 1 verse 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. And what did God do? The Spirit of God came and hovered over the face of His Of the waters. And then by his word, God intervened. He said, Let there be light, and there was light. And then, Genesis 1, verse 6, God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters, and it was so. That's what Peter means by the phrase, out of water and through water. God left some water down here in oceans and rivers and lakes, and He put some waters in the canopies, in the rain, in the hail, in the snow, and He lifted the land up out of the water by His Word. He made the earth. Which was of supporting the and I'm so fired up, I don't even need a battery. I want you to notice that the issue is God's Word. And in the text, it's a a matter of overwhelming power. It's true in 2 Peter, but God's Word is a consistently overwhelming power in all of the Scriptures. You remember, we just read Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of His mouth, all their hosts. You think of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Christ upholds the entire universe by the word of His power. And Peter says, scoffers always forget something crucial. They just presume that God won't act. But the creation itself proves God really does intervene. And the crazy thing is, it's not even difficult for Him. It takes nothing more than His Word. Peter anticipates another objection to the doctrine of divine judgment. So they say, okay, sure. God intervened once, But he has stopped intervening since then. What they actually appeal to is is what you and I would call deism. The idea that that God put the universe in order. That was a time of direct involvement. But then he pulled himself back from the affairs of men, from the affairs of the world. And this is a view that resurfaced during the Enlightenment period. It's actually woven through so many of the founders of our own nation. Ben Franklin Thomas Paine so many others. How does Peter answer this issue? He says, those who scoff at the idea of divine justice deliberately overlook this fact as well. Verse 6, Divine means of these—that that is by means of water and his own word, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perish. He says the flood itself, Genesis 6, through 9 is proof that God intervenes in the affairs of men. But more than that, that when he intervenes in the affairs of men, he really does judge sin. At creation, God brought order out of chaos. At the flood, God returned the chaos on to the order that he had created, and all it took was his word. The flood says God has every right and every intention to judge sin. I had an Old Testament professor in the seminary. He was a sweet, really tender, godly man. And he would say it like this. He'd say, the blood proves that God can drop the hammer of judgment whenever He wants to. Because it is His right. But those who would mock would look around and they'd say, well look, all the regularity of the world. Everything just keeps going and going. Going And Peter says, that's a really short-term view. Because the creation and the flood are enough to warn you that regularity doesn't mean God won't pass. The normal patterns of the universe should never be cause for complacency. All it takes is a word from the mouth of God. Look at verse 7. But by this same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You see, it's not hard for God if He could, with His Word, cause it to rain, drops of rain, in the days of Noah. The Bible says that there is a day coming, and it's called the Day of the Lord, and we're going to talk about that next week. But a day of the Lord is coming when but a Word will cause it to rain. On those who deliberately ignore facts. On those who would refuse his mercy. And those who think he won't, or those who think he can't, should consider what th- went through the minds of the people in the days of Noah. Day one. Hey, honey, this is funny. Noah went ahead and got in the ark, and it really is raining. He got those together somehow. Day five, it's still raining. My roof is starting to leak, but we've seen five days of rain before. It'll stop, I'm sure. Day ten? Maybe Noah was right. How long did it take? Before one after one, everyone began to realize Noah wasn't just weird. world was deluged with water because God said he would judge the world of sin. And Noah was the only one who said, I actually need a deliverer. I will trust you, Lord. And everyone else said, I think I want to float it out. Trust world patterns in the Word of God. It's a very which withheld rain until it was ready. It was holding fire until he's ready to judge and destroy the ungodly. But let's talk about this. Who in the Bible are the ungodly? It is simply those who refuse to repent and seek deliverance. God's justice highlights his patience and invites your repentance. What you must read, what they will say, and then finally, what you must understand a little bit of a play on words in Peter. He actually likes the word plays. The scoffers, these false teachers, deliberately overlook certain facts, but you, verse 8, do not overlook this one fact. Beloved, the day of the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness but is patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, right and wrong are absolute categories. But fast and slow are not absolute categories. Fast and slow is a a measure of your own perspective. And on one hand, most of us have live long enough to to look around the world and to see so much injustice in the world. And and probably every one of us has begun to wonder, how much longer, Lord, will you let the enemy reign? And we think that time somehow is the enemy of truth. Is God ever going to make the evil go away? Is He ever going to right the wrongs or punish the wicked or save the oppressed? Peter says to be very clear, God is not dragging His feet Because the eternal God, who is infinite, stands outside of time, and He is not ruled nor troubled by time, and He is not waiting. Instead, He has a definite plan. So even the issue of thousands of years is the most relevant factor in your eyes. It's not even relevant to Him at all, because fast and slow are subjective. You know this by watching So my great-uncle said to my dad, I want to give your boy my mountain bike. I'm 10 years old. I've been riding that sweet banana seat with the chopper handlebars. My chain keeps falling off as I try to make ramps and jump. When my dad passed along the news, hey, we'll go get the mountain bike in a couple of weeks, anticipation about killed me. I don't remember how long it took, 12 days, 15 days, whatever it was, it felt like 47 years. And it's because when you are a child, time is is truncated. Time always feels like the enemy of of truth. Am I really going to get the bite? Is that ever going to happen? And you know that the four-year-old feels like it takes forever to get to his fifth birthday. 15 year old waiting for the 16th birthday and the driver's license. Somehow those twelve months feel like six years. That's Peter's point. He says time isn't the enemy of truth. You might feel weakened by time, but God is not weakened at all. Do you ever misread a Like completely get it wrong? Peter says most of you are doing that. Some level. In fact, it's exactly the opposite of what you might say. Peter would tell us it's it's possible that all of us would let time and the normalcy of life warp our sense of divine justice. And there may be some here who are tired of waiting for the return of Jesus. Could things possibly get any worse? How much longer, Jesus? How much more until you will finally judge the wicked and deal with all of this ungodliness? There may be others here who would say, I don't know for sure if Jesus is going to return. Maybe he will in theory. I'm 22 or I'm 18. I'm going to plan for it in the same way that I'm planning for my retirement. And that is, it's so far off that it matters. Heard it. There it is. Another fire and brimstone sermon. And I am not convinced. Let me be very clear. Verse 9 tells us this is no fire and brimstone sermon. In fact, Jesus Christ offers the answer to every misconception. It's a comfort to the skeptic. It's a comfort to the Christian. The fact that God will not judge the world Yet, yeah, it's not a measure of slowness. It's a measure of patience. But what is God waiting for? He's waiting for you to get your wife together? Is He waiting for you to finally stop sinning and build a long enough track record? Okay, He can come now? No. That's not what verse 9 says at all. He's patient so that all would repent. Is repentance attainable? It is way more attainable than moral perfection. In fact, repentance simply requires the humility to swallow your pride and to say, I'm actually not good enough to pass under God's judgment. In fact, God would have to be merciful to me in order for me to ever stand under His righteous wrath. You see, friends, repentance isn't reserved for the morally good. In fact, if anyone is resistant to repentance, it's those who believe that they are morally good. Those who think they are morally superior aren't the ones who will stand on the day of judgment. Those who think they're good enough to earn God's love are not the ones who will stand when it is proven that they were not. It's been said, it's not the good who will stand on the judgment day. It's those who know they are good. It's not those who understand the most, but those who understand that the most has been done Because Jesus Christ is offered as a comfort to those who would repent. By faith in him, you can stand on the judgment day because Christ stood under your judgment. Friend God, it's justice. I like this patience. And it invites your repentance.